worship team. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know our worship team frequently is all volunteers. And so um, let us be encouraged by and encourage them. It's good to see you today. I'm Pastor Joy. I'm an associate pastor here, and I have been gone a lot recently. I missed you, which is good to say. I, I did especially, though, miss the Bible studies I lead for those who I know in those. I missed you especially. So if you want me to miss you more, join a Bible study. Um, <laughs> but a few weeks ago, we were gone again, and we were gone because my family was uh, at the wedding of my brother-in-law. My husband, Justin, has a brother who's 13 years younger, and he got married, and Justin and my kids were in the wedding, and I just got to sit there, which was great, but it was a very fun wedding. We were happy to celebrate with Trevor. And then, because we were already up in northern Minnesota, we had decided to send our daughter to camp in northern Minnesota, and it's a camp that I used to work at. And so the next day after the wedding, we drove about an hour to a small area in Minnesota, south of Duluth. It's a camp I know pretty well. I've, I spent se several summers working at the camp in college, and uh, so it's a familiar place to me. And after we'd said goodbye to Evelyn, Justin and I were walking to her car, and I ran into a staff worker there. I could tell because she had on a camp t-shirt and a name tag. And we just started talking, and she sort of randomly said to me, I think it was a joke, but one of those serious jokes, she said, hey, you want to stay and volunteer this week? We're short-staffed. Usually I'm not one to make that sort of week-long commitment, but I was already planning on working remotely. So if you got an email from me a few weeks ago, it was from northern Minnesota, where I decided to stay and volunteer, and I helped wash dishes. I worked at the waterfront, not a lifeguard, but I did the buddy board thing to make sure all the campers were accounted for. And actually, for the first time in 24 years, I stayed at this camp all week, slept in the sta staff housing that's kind of mildewy. Um, junior hires were the campers. I helped do the boating. Honestly, it was great. And um, it was kind of a small thing, but it was actually a huge gift to me because in my work and in my home, I'm a leader. But at camp, I just did whatever Rhonda, the program director I'd run into, whatever Rhonda said. And I did have a lot of time for reflection and, and doing my remote work. But every morning, I'd sit looking at the lake, reading Zechariah commentaries, and remembering the almost half year of my life that I spent there in the 90s. God answered a lot of my prayers at this camp. That's a different sermon, but... I recognized just the faithfulness of God. It was sort of like a spiritual pilgrimage that I didn't even know I needed, and there it was. And that week, surrounded by the Minnesota state bird, which if you do not know, it is the mosquito, I did experience the outpouring generosity and love of God. I was deeply blessed. And they were blessed, too. They needed help. I was surprised, actually. I had prayed. This is a dangerous prayer. I prayed, God, would you please surprise me? Well, God did surprise me, and it was a great surprise, washing dishes. And that is my greeting from Minnesota. But now I'm back, and we are in the middle of a 14-chapter book called Zechariah. Zechariah, if you're just joining us, is one of the minor prophets in Scripture, which makes it sound like he's unimportant or like it's sad, like in a minor key. But really what that means is that it's short, 
So I would advocate for rebranding the minor prophets to the short prophets. Anyway, the structure of this book is basically in two parts. And this week, we will continue exploring that first section, Zechariah's dream visions. We've been looking at two of them each week, and I was assigned two for this week. Um, but I realized after I'd worked on the two visions, visions four and five, I had written two sermons. I, you didn't come here to hear two sermons, so I took them apart, and I will preach the other one next week. So today, we will be focusing on the fifth vision in, Jap in um, Zechariah chapter 4. So I invite you to stand with me. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible or on your Bible app, you're welcome to, but I will be reading this from the message version with some of my own translation because it kind of makes it a little bit more understandable. So let us hear the word of the Lord. The messenger angel again called me to attention. It was like being wakened out of a deep sleep. He said, what do you see? I answered, I see a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top. Seven lamps, each with seven spouts, are set on the bowl. And there are two olive trees, one on either side of the bowl. Then I asked the messenger angel, what does this mean, sir? The messenger angel said, can't you tell? No, sir, I said. Then he said, this is God's message to Zerubbabel. You can't force these things. They only come about through my spirit, says God of the angel armies. So, big mountain, who do you think you are? Next to Zerubbabel, you'll be smoothed out into a plain. He'll proceed to set the cornerstone in place, accompanied by cheers. Grace, grace to it. After that, the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel started rebuilding this temple, and he will complete it. That will be your confirmation that God of the angel armies sent me to you. Does anyone dare despise this day of small things? They'll change their tune when they see Zerubbabel setting the last stone in place. Going back to the vision, the messenger angel said, the seven lamps are the eyes of God probing the dark corners of the world like searchlights. And the two olive trees on either side of the lampstand, I asked. What's the meaning of them? And while you're at it, the two branches of the olive trees that feed oil to the lamps, what do they mean? He said, you haven't figured that out? I said, no, sir. He said, these are the two who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can go ahead and be seated. I keep on making the same joke, but it's that I think for most of us, this study into Zechariah is a lot of new material. You know what I'm saying? Right? It's okay to admit that. Okay, so this is what's happening in this fifth image. This is a symbol that Zechariah is familiar with. This is the lampstand that would have been in the temple. It was in the tabernacle. This is a reproduction of how it's described in Exodus 25. It is quite tall, about five foot three inches. It's solid gold, and it has seven lights. Those would have been lit by oil, so they're not for candlesticks. It's for oil, and then you'd have a wick. But the one Zachariah sees is tricked out. It's kind of extreme. Here's a rendering of it. You can see quite a few different renderings online. Um, 
and there's different ways to draw this. This is one of the ways. So attached to the lampstand are two olive trees. And the olive trees must have some sort of internal press in them because coming out of the olive trees is olive. It's sort of like tapping a maple tree, but it's olive oil. And the oil from the trees is going into the big bowl, and that oil is each going into seven reservoirs on each of the, candle, the candlesticks that aren't candlesticks. Each have seven channels. So some interpreters, these, some interpreters understand these uh, to be wicks, especially based on archaeological findings of household lamps that have seven spouts, each for a different wick. And we have a little picture of one of those that, that might have been what he was seeing. So we can see that this lampstand is self-oiling. The trees oil the lampstand, and then it's extra bright because each of the arms of the lampstand have, rather than one wick, seven. So rather than seven lights, it is 49 lights. So this is a super, super bright lampstand. And these super bright lamp lights, we learn in verse 10b, they represent God's eyes. Now that kind of is weird. I'm not saying God has 49 eyes. But what it represents is that God is watchful. God is all-knowing. He sees all. Nothing can escape the light the presence, the knowledge of God, nothing or no one can hide from God. And because the trees are attached to the lamp, rather than someone having to go every day, which they would have had to do in the temple and fill the lamp with oil, these trees just crank it out. So we have to think of this as a sort of more an artist rendering than industrial design, like it doesn't actually tell us how the oil is made in the trees, but we can, we can trust the image. What Zechariah is seeing is a super bright, self-oiling lamp. This is not an amazing picture, but I do want you to feel a little amazed in your heart that this is an image in scripture. I have fallen in love with this image. It's in my mind all the time these days. It's, it's sort of like are you familiar with the Rube Goldberg machine where the, all the toys are set up? The dominoes go down and they hit a little car and then a helium balloon is released. They have them at children's museums sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? It's like one that, that resets itself, right? So it's amazing. It, and it's super bright as well. And this vision of this lamp and the trees, it's a message of encouragement and empowerment for Zerubbabel. Maybe you're unfamiliar with him. He's not like a children's Bible story character we focus on. But Zerubbabel is the governor in charge of rebuilding the temple, along with the high priest Joshua, who we'll hear about next week. God says to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the angel armies. Who are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And I think the meaning is clear here. The Spirit of God is going to supply what is needed. Because Zerubbabel needs divine help. He has a lot of needs. He is facing huge challenges in rebuilding the temple. There is oppression, opposition from the Samaritans. There is internal conflict within the people of God who's returned. Everyone's tired. And also, it's not raining, and so there is an economic crisis. Simply put, the cards are stacked against Zerubbabel. 
he does not have what it takes to be a successful leader. He doesn't have what it takes to successfully lead a building campaign and build a temple. I think that Zerubbabel is on empty. And in this, we see this other metaphor in this passage, the bit about the mountain. It's like Zerubbabel, this problem is so big, so huge, it's like Zerubbabel is standing in front of the mountain, and he has no way to get over it. He doesn't have a pickaxe, nothing. It's like that song about going on a bear hunt, right? You can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it, and you can't go through it, and so he just stands there. There's nothing he can do. Zerubbabel is not going to be able to overcome the challenges through his own might or his own power, but he does have, but what he does have is access to the power of God, the power from the self-oiling lamp, which is the presence of the Spirit of God. And then we see here, the mountain's there, but then suddenly it's gone. The mountain is leveled. The mountain becomes a plain, and then it's so easy for Zerubbabel to take that capstone, that's the last stone put on the building, and just pop it right on top, only by the grace of God, grace, grace, only by the grace of God is this accomplished, because God sees, God knows, God cares, and God provides. And then God continues to encourage Zechariah. He says to Zechariah, Zerubbabel laid the foundation, he started it, and he will complete it. And you will know, because this prophecy will be true, that the Lord has sent me to you. And the prophecy is true. Zerubbabel does finish the work. He finishes it three years later. And then, I, before I go on, I'm just going to say it again. I think this is an awesome lamp. I, I would like this lamp in my garden. I would like a good image of it. There's not really great ones yet. But um, I think this lamp is great. However, the next part in the passage I think might even be more important than the lamp. We read, Who dares despise the day of small things? Rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's really interesting that this is here. I mean, because it seems like this vision is about grand things. This amazing invention, this 49 light lamp with the automatic oiling going on, a finished temple, a, a mountain leveled into a plain. All of these things are really big and awesome and amazing. And then suddenly God says, do not despise the day of small things. But this is a, this is a day of great things, isn't it? But God's saying, do not despise the day of small things. It's interesting. You don't usually tell someone not to do something unless they're already doing it. They're despising the day of small things. But to take, the, but here's the reality. To make something big and great, it takes small thing after small thing after small thing. The Cathedral of Notre Dame almost, took almost 200 years to be completed. The Panama Canal, I looked this up. I didn't know this before this week. It took 10 years. I was like, oh, that was faster than I thought. But it's still 10 years. And if you have ever done any kind of home renovation, it always takes longer than they say. You know what I mean? And then there's, then there's babies. Right? Babies grow up fast. But when you're in the midst of it, they say, the days are long, but the years are short. 
every day is a day of small things when you have a baby. Do not despise the day of small things, Zerubbabel. Do not despise the day of small things, Hensdale Covenant Church. And I say that because I really firmly believe that this chapter is deeply applicable to us today, even if we never read it before. And let's look at that together. So first, many of us here have leadership responsibilities. And I'm thinking of this quite broadly. Maybe you're not faced with a temple rebuilding capital campaign like Zerubbabel, but you have your own mountains. Maybe it's a mountain of challenging emails to respond to or a mountain of laundry or a mountain of paperwork. Maybe students, mountains of what you need to do to go to college, right? We all have some mountains of work and we all have some leadership responsibilities. So if you lead in your home, your household, or your job, if you manage one person, if you volunteer as a leader, I just want to see. Who leads? Who's, who's a leader? Don't be modest. I'm thinking a lot of you are leaders if, and you're not raising your hand, <laughs> right? And even if you really don't lead anyone, you know what you do lead? You lead yourself. We all have volition. We all lead in some capacity. And leadership can be exhausting. Decision-making is exhausting. Navigating cultural issues, discerning what God wants you to do in the role Maybe you feel over your head. And, and I could make a case that in the western suburbs, and I certainly don't mean this as a judgment, but I think it's a reality. In the western suburbs, we prize success and self-sufficiency. It might be an archaic term, but the idea of the self-made man is real. We ask students, what are you doing to set yourself up for success? And, and even some people who might be type A, and not type A, but they make really comprehensive plans that are very impressive. I am impressed, I am impressed by type A people. And um, many of you have achieved and done very well. But the reality is, is that success and self-sufficiency are not infinite. You will fall down emotionally, physically, spiritually, morally. You will be discouraged. You might reach the top of the ladder for yourself and, and wondered if anyone else has figured it out that you're faking it. That's normal. Because our resources are finite. At some point, we do hit empty. We have to refuel. But this lamp and these trees, I believe, are a picture of God. God has no gas tank. God is never tired or empty or worn out. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He doesn't fall asleep on the couch at 10.34 p.m. every night. I don't know anything about that. God ha either has or it might even be a metaphor for God himself. This self-oiling lamp from these two olive trees, God makes stuff from nothing. Our culture tells us to be self-sufficient. Zechariah tells us, that God is sufficient. Now, there is a lot of friendly disagreement about who or what this lamp and these trees represent. Historically, commentators have thought that the anointed ones are Joshua and Zerubbabel, the trees, or, or even angels. But truthfully, as I reflected on this image, I, I started to wonder if, if maybe the set of three this lamp and the two trees and pouring in, like maybe it's an allusion to our triune God himself. It's not a perfect image, but 
Jesus is the anointed one. And we see oil as always representing the power of the spirit. This could represent God or God's power, but whatever it is, this image is a gift reminding us of who God is and what God has done. And it is only through God. And it is for us. And, and I hope that as you've heard about this lamp and about Zerubbabel, you thought, I kind of want that power in my life, this blessing from God. So if you feel like Zerubbabel standing in front of the mountain of whatever mountain you face, go to God. God provides infinite resources of love and acceptance and wisdom and power and hope and forgiveness. You, you might find these things in yourself or others. I'm sure you do, but they will run out. Others fall asleep at 10.34 p.m. on the couch. Others disappoint us. Others fall down. Others run out. But God, God is always going. So plug into God through through scripture, where God speaks, through prayer, where God hears, through the faith community, the body of Christ. Because, my friends, no matter how much money you have or where you're going to college or the size of your 401k, you cannot invent this self-oiling lamp. I'm sorry, it's God's. You will run out otherwise. Plug into God. God is sufficient. Now, please don't hear me saying that everything is always going to be fine tomorrow. I'm not saying that. This is not health and wealth gospel. That's a heresy. Life with Jesus is hard. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The Christian life is not without suffering. That is true. But what I'm saying is, is that when we think we can solve everything on our own, that we can always be successful if we follow the right recipe or life hack, we will be disappointed. We will be overwhelmed, at least at some point. Because our primary goal as followers of Jesus is not to be a self-made man or a self-made woman. Our primary goal is to know God in Christ. And so here's this picture of God pouring out his blessings on the leadership of the community, ready to encourage, ready to provide. The light's always on. God is always present. But it is fascinating here. Because just juxtaposed with this awesome lamp is the invitation not to despise the day of small things. Because God works through small things. It is tedious sometimes. The days are long. Do not despise the day of small things. Learn to see the small way God is at work. Learn to see them and take note of them and give thanks. So as an illustration, there is a thing that is called plant blindness. And it has nothing to do with one's ability to see, but it has to do with an inability or a lack of noticing the difference between plants. Sort of like all the stuff is green and all the pine trees are about the same and there's just like trees and grass and flowers and those are the plants, right? Um, in order to combat plant blindness and appreciate God's creative work, one could consult an app, there are apps for this, or my favorite, a plant identification guide to distinguish between plants, to learn which one might give you a rash and which one might be good in pesto and nettles or both. <laughs> but we have to develop eyes to see the differences between the plants. And it's kind of like developing the eyes to see God at work. 
This is a skill. This is a spiritual practice because God is always at work. But we have to learn how to recognize it. And it does take attention to identify the work of God, to not despise the day of small things because God is always present and active. Those lights are always on. God is always here. Those lights on the lampstand, they're to remind us of that. One of a pastor's job, I, I firmly believe, is to help people identify God at work. If you ever want to sit down with me and share about your life, I'll say, how is God at work in this? What is God doing? Because the question isn't, is God doing something? God is always doing something. So here's an example about a small thing. When my children were young, I felt like I was always cleaning up the kitchen. We, we were clever enough to kind of put an old tablecloth under the high chair and then all the crumbs. This is a tip for parents with young children. All the crumbs would go in there and you just kind of shake it outside. But still, crumbs would get everywhere else. And once again, one day, I was sweeping up the crumbs after a snack and I prayed while I swept. And this was my prayer. God, I am tired of sweeping up the floor. And I had a sense that God said, yes, but this is why you don't have cockroaches. I was like, that is a good point. <laughs> and after that, my attitude towards sweeping the floor changed. It's a small thing, right? But it has long-term big results. No cockroaches. Do the small things. Do not despise them. Because, my friends, it is in the small things that God works. It is in an embryo attaching to a young girl's uterus 2,000 years ago that God is at work. It is in this short message a man named Paul gave to some God-fearers outside Ephesus. It's the small things. There's a scene from the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Richard Power called The Overstory that I can't get out of my head. This is a book about trees. You can kind of see a theme in my sermon today. One of the characters, Patricia Westwood, learns about trees from her father. And I'm going to read from the book. They, Patricia and her father, design an experiment together. They put 200 pounds of soil in a wooden tub by the south face of the barn. Then they extract a three-angled beech nut, weigh it, and push it into the loam. We'll keep the tub moist and free of weeds for the next six years. When you turn sweet 16, we'll weigh the tree and the soil again. The story continues, and Patricia's father dies. And then we continue. In the summer of her 18th year, preparing to head to eastern Kentucky to study botany, she remembers the beach growing in its tub of soil outside the barn. Shame rushes through her. How could she have forgotten the experiment? She has missed her promise to her father by two years, skipped sweet 16 altogether. She spends an entire July afternoon freeing the tree from the soil and crumbling every thimble of dirt from its roots. Then she weighs both the plant and the earth it fed on. The fraction of an ounce of beech nut now weighs more than she does, but the soil weighs just what it did minus an ounce or two. There is no other explanation. Almost all the tree's mass has come from the very air. Her father knows this. Now she does too. So think about the image today from scripture. Those olive trees, they take in air. 
A mature olive tree will produce about 1,100 pounds of olives in a year, and these fuel the seven times brighter lamp. The Spirit of God is sustaining the people of God through nothing other than air. My friends, this is the work of God. Trees grow from air. The substance God provides for us, and it will probably look different than what we imagine. It's there for the taking. Do you need that self-oiling lamp in your life? Do you want to live a life empowered by the Spirit of God? I read this, and I long to, too. Do you need the equipping God offers? Do you feel like your resources are thin, your energy is gone, and you're exhausted and overwhelmed just like Zerubbabel. My friends, we worship a God who is so much greater, so much more powerful than we could ever be. Let us go to him. Let us recognize him at work in these small things that build up day after day after day and become a rebuilt temple or a 160-pound beach or a light that never goes out. So a week ago this past Friday, I left camp. Nothing huge had happened. I kind of had hoped it would. I was like, maybe I'll just cry for a while. Didn't happen. However, uh, all the dishes were clean. No child uh, drowned, right? I had a kind of a suntan and some mosquito bites, and sand was permanently embedded in my shoes, all small things. But I did feel like I had somehow experienced the gifts of that lamp, the presence of God, the reality that God, even after 24 years, was faithful. Now, here's what's super cool. The program director that I'd met, that I'd been talking to, Rhonda, who invited me to volunteer, we figured out that I had been her counselor in 1997. Here's a photo she found. That's me in the glasses is a small thing, being Rhonda's counselor 26 years ago. But as I reflected on this, I thought, like, can you be, can one be proud of God? Because I feel really proud of God. Rhonda and I are both pastors. I look at this photo and I think, wow, God, that was a small thing. I didn't even remember it. But look what came of it. Look what God has done. And so, friends, you might be discouraged by where you are right now, but I want to encourage you with the never-ending, unfailing, always an eternal lamp of the power and love and mercy of God that is always available to us. God is good. He creates stuff from nothing. He feeds the oil from the air, from the self-oiling trees, and he provides the strength we need to get through it. Working through the smallest thing ever. God is good. Do not despise the day of small things, because the small things become great. Amen. A response to good theology is doxology, which means giving praise. We've been praying after the sermons this series, and so today we are going to praise, praise with a psalm. Psalms are great for praise. This is Psalm 147, about the work of the Lord. So I invite you to stand. We'll read this psalm responsibly. And I invite you to read the bold print as we give thanks to God for who he is and what he has done. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He heals the brokenhearted. He determines the number of the stars. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. He covers the heavens with clouds and prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the speed of a runner. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Amen. Praise the Lord.